Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. There's, of course, the prime or the, the new incoming president of the United States, Donald Trump. The story gets more and more interesting as we get closer and closer to the inauguration. Uh, I, I tweeted a little earlier. Let me just find the tweet. I tweeted earlier, um, MSM interviewing only Trump opponents, question mark, the wounded consoling the aggrieved. So it's starting to seem to me. And a Reuters story begins this way. U.S. civil rights activists kicked off a week of protest ahead of Donald Trump's presidential inauguration with a march in Washington on Saturday, vowing to keep fighting for equality and justice under the upcoming administration, chanting no justice, no peace. A few thousand protesters headed by the Reverend Al Sharpton marched along the National Mall toward the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial about two miles from the steps of the U.S. Capitol, where Trump will be sworn in as president on Friday. Man's not the president yet. Protest is fine. Protest is, is, is guaranteed. The right to protest is guaranteed under the Constitution of the United States. It'll be interesting what, uh, what we see develop over the coming days. It'll be fascinating to see what we develop over the coming days. Now, uh, a little earlier in the week, there was, of course, the first news conference that Donald Trump has held in months. And I want to play a couple of clips for you from that before we talk to our guest Uh, Here's Donald Trump from that news conference addressing the issue of BuzzFeed posting a two-paged addendum set to come from the intelligence community's report about Russian hacking of the Democratic Party and interference in the U.S. election. Here's Donald Trump. I think it was uh, disgraceful, disgraceful that the intelligence agencies allowed any information that turned out to be so false and fake out. I think it's a disgrace. And I say that, and I say that. And that's something that Nazi Germany would have done and did do. I think it's a disgrace. That information that was false and fake and never happened got released to the public. As far as BuzzFeed, which is a failing pile of garbage, writing it, I think they're going to suffer the consequences. They already are. And as far as CNN going out of their way to build it up, And by the way, we just found out I was coming down, Michael Cohn, I was being, Michael Cohn is a very talented lawyer, he's a good lawyer in my firm. It was just reported that it wasn't this Michael Cohn they were talking about. So all night long, it's Michael Cohn. I said, I want to see your passport. He brings his passport to my office. I say, hey, wait a minute, he didn't leave the country. He wasn't out of the country. They had Michael Cohn of the Trump Organization was in Prague. It turned out to be a different Michael Cohn. It's a disgrace what took place, it's a disgrace. And I think they ought to apologize sir. to start with Michael Cohn. So you hear the little voice in the background, sir, sir, sir? I think that's the voice of Jim Acosta from CNN. And there was this exchange between Donald Trump and the CNN reporter. And I think they ought to apologize to start with Michael Cohn. Since you're attacking us, can you give us a question? Since you're, no, Mr. President-elect, Go ahead. Mr. President-elect, Go ahead. since you are attacking no, our news not organization, you. Not can you. you give us a chance? Your organization You are attacking our news organization. organization. Can you give us a chance Let's to go. ask a question, sir? Go ahead. Sir, can Quiet. you state, Mr. President-elect, Go ahead. can you state categorically, Mr. President-elect, can you give us a question? Don't be rude. You're attacking us. Can you give us a question? Don't be rude. Can you give us a question? I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You sta- can you state categorically? You are fake news. Sir, Go ahead. can you state categorically that nobody... No, Mr. President-elect, that's not Go appropriate. Ahead. Do you think President Obama went too far with... So clearly the, uh, <laughs> the atmosphere is changing in news conferences from what we've seen over the years with presidents and even presidents-elect. Now, when the press secretary takes over, no doubt the uh, it may be a little bit uh, more standard. Who knows? I didn't like the fact that uh, Donald Trump made the reference to Nazi Germany, the cent- the uh, American intelligence community, and suggesting that what they did would be what would have been done in Nazi Germany. I don't like any references to Nazi Germany. I thought that was highly unfair. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Donald Trump and the relationship between the president-elect and the media, particularly mainstream media, and the ethics or lack of ethics in that uh, relationship, which is 
It's been about as bumpy a relationship as I can recall between major media organizations and a U.S. administration. Incoming or present, Jane Kirtley is a professor of media ethics at the University of Minnesota. She's also um, a lawyer. And um, Jane, thank you so much for all the time you give us. A, let me start with the BuzzFeed decision to post the two pages claimed to be an addendum to the intelligence report about Russia hacking the Democratic Party and emails by Clinton, Podesta, and others. There's no verification. At the time, there was no, um, no name involved, and there was no way to corroborate that this information was or, in fact, wasn't factual. Was BuzzFeed 100% of the wrong? I don't think they were 100% the wrong, although I'm somewhat in the minority among uh, media ethicists in the United States on that position. And this is the, my thinking on it, and obviously people can disagree. If this had been a situation where this dossier had just kind of found its way to BuzzFeed over the transom, brown paper wrapper, no way to document whether it had ever been looked at by the intelligence community or anything, then I would share the chorus of those who say it should not have been published. But it's a very different scenario. We know that it has actually been floating around Washington for quite some time, and many people have used that as a justification for saying that what BuzzFeed did was wrong because so many mainstream organizations had it and chose not to publish it for exactly the reason you said, that they could not independently verify it. But for me, once it became part of the package that was used to brief the president, the president-elect, members of Congress, and others that was supplied by the intelligence community, then it seems to me there is an argument to be made that it is appropriate to publish it with the caveat and disclaimers that BuzzFeed made, that this was not something that they could verify. Again, I think most journalists that I've read don't agree with that thinking, but I've noticed a lot of comments on mainstream media sites from members of the public who have ranged from saying they shouldn't have done it, but also saying things like, why didn't you do this before? You know, we should have the right to look at this and decide for ourselves. And some of them have equated it with the infamous situation involving Dan Rather at CBS and the documents allegedly pertaining to former President Bush's service in the National Guard, which was debunked by the fact that people got to see the documents. So, I, I mean, I guess my point is that putting it out there does mean that it can be subject to public scrutiny. And to me, that's a positive thing. Uh, Mr. Trump said he had not seen that uh, that document, those two pages, the addendum, and, uh, and and that it wasn't brought up by the intelligence community. And uh, the, the head of the U.S. intelligence agencies, in fact... Um, apologized in a way, I suppose, to, to Mr. Trump for, for that getting, uh, getting out or, or, or being included as some sort of uh, information from the intelligence community. When, when you have Donald Trump saying, I didn't see this, it wasn't part of my briefing, is BuzzFeed not, off, uh, not way out of line or, or at least CNN? Well, I, I, I will draw a distinction between BuzzFeed and CNN in just a second. Obviously, I don't know what President-elect Trump saw or didn't see, but I saw the other day that uh, Vice President Biden says he has seen it. So the notion that it wasn't made available, I think, is at least subject to some dispute. But having said that, um, you know, again, for me, CNN did what sort of would be the classic mainstream media journalistic approach, which is that they summarized it but did not include uh, the full report. And uh, soft-pedaled the more salacious details, which a lot of people have been focusing on. Again, different people read this in different ways, but for me, the, the sex stuff is only important in the sense that, to me, it is reflective of techniques that we know uh, the Russians, both in the former Soviet Union and today, have used to try to compromise diplomats and others in terms of getting them into sexually compromised. But, Jane, I have to ask, what, what, does, this have to, what does this have to do with, with Donald Trump? Because the what Russians... Because, Donald because Trump? It has to do with Donald Trump because in the last few weeks we have seen more and more allegations about how deeply involved Mr. Trump himself, his companies, and people who are being put forward as potential cabinet appointees, how deeply involved they are with Russia. And a yeah, question but, that keeps coming up is... Are they involved with them purely for financial reasons? Is it 
or are there is there compromising information in the hands of the Russians that will be used against them to try to extort deals? Well, Jane, I'll tell you how, how I would operate. If I don't know, if I don't know, if I don't have at least substantial information that provides me with evidence that something has happened, something has gone on, I'm speaking generically now, I won't go on the air with it. I would not go on the air. I would not say that a series of allegations that were raised have led to the right to publish something that, that takes the allegations to another level. It, there has to be some proof. There has to be some evidence. New York Times, no fan of Donald Trump, not, all, not, not supportive of CNN or BuzzFeed. I, that's true. And again, I think, you know, journalists can differ on this point. And I agree that it's not a clear-cut situation. But, you know, I, I'm going to use a, an example that, it, you know, the, the situation is probably different in Canada. But here in the United States, when American journalists cover arrests and so forth of just ordinary criminals, they repeat verbatim what law enforcement has told them. Um, nothing's been proven at that point. Nobody's been convicted at that point. And yet we say this is what the police are saying. This is who they are charging. I don't see that this is fundamentally different from that practice. Um, yes, it's higher profile, but the principle is exactly the same. If you're using documents that are being relied upon by the government, attributing them, and making clear you haven't been able to independently verify it, it seems to me that then it's legitimate to say, okay, you know, it's up to you now, the public, to decide. Now, the tricky part is that because um, Mr. Trump has been so adept, and, you know, I, 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 I salute him for this because it's, he's been so good at this, at basically pointing to errors that have been made by the news media and labeling that then fake news, uh, an idea that has... A lot of people, both his supporters and those who don't support him, have rallied around. He's been quite effective in exploiting errors that some would say are errors in judgment or factual errors made by but, the news. But, Jane, I have to challenge you on that. Is that exploitation or just pointing out that you've made mistakes? And if there's a series of mistakes that have been made, does there not at some point become evident that there's an agenda? And with the MSM, with the mainstream media in the United States, to me at least, there clearly has been an anti-Trump agenda, and it's become stronger and stronger to the point now that I see left-leaning mainstream media interviewing left-leaning, disappointed Clinton supporters. And they're the ones who keep driving the narrative forward. Yeah, I heard you say that in your introductory remarks, and I, and I would have to differ with that because just to give you an example, as, as you probably know and probably many of your listeners watch, we have these Sunday morning talk shows that appear here on our, on our broadcast networks. I was just looking to see who is going to be on CBS tomorrow. Who is it? It's Newt, it's Newt Gingrich and it's Vice President Pence, uh, Vice President-elect Pence. There has been no shortage of Trump representatives, Trump surrogates, and others um, on the airwaves and being interviewed. Um, you know, I, I, I disagree that this is a situation where the deck is stacked. The protests and so forth that are being contemplated and planned are legitimate news. I may not agree politically with what they're planning to do, what they have in mind, but as you pointed out, it's constitutionally protected and it's legitimate news to cover. Well, it seems to me, really, just based on what I've seen, what I've recorded, what I've kept files on for the last uh, 10 or 11 months, that there has been a significant bias against Trump and toward uh, Hillary Clinton and the Democrats, and that's nothing new for mainstream well, of media. Course, and yet Mr. Trump is the elected uh, president. So, right. you know, if, if in fact your calculation is correct, it, it ultimately has not achieved what allegedly no, it hasn't. we're trying it, to achieve. And even the New York Times agreed that uh, in an editorial after the election that they hadn't done their jobs properly. Well, so. I, I, I think they did agree that they hadn't done their job, but there, were, there was a lot more to it than, than simply yeah. the way they were covering Trump or covering Hillary Clinton in isolation. There were a lot of drop balls and a lot of mistakes made, and right. I think there's a great deal of soul-searching going on with the news media now about how they covered this election. Okay, I have to jump in, Jane, because the clock got us. Thank you so much for your time. I always enjoy talking to you, even if we disagree on issues. And we do, but we do so respectfully, right? We do, indeed. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Toby Congliffe uh, from Democrats Abroad and Mark Fagenbaum from uh, Republicans Abroad. Join us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Gentlemen, we've talked a lot about the election, the U.S. election leading up to it. Here we are. You both live in Canada. You're active in this country. You're Americans. You're members of the 
two major political parties. I just have a question for each of you, and I'll start with you, Mark, as, uh, as a member of the Republican Party. What are your expectations for the relationship between Canada and the United States going forward, knowing there are some really significant fundamental differences between Donald Trump and Justin Trudeau? Well, I think that um, there is going to be difference. It's going to be different than the relationship that was prior, whether good or bad in various uh, parts. We don't know yet, obviously, because we don't have foresight. But um, but this has happened a lot in Canadian history. If you look historically back, um, Pierre Trudeau, I think, was uh, was through five different presidents, I believe. So this happens all the time, and, and we have to adjust our relationship and um, do what's best for Canada, and they do what's best for the U.S. Do you see, though, some significantly... Um difficult, challenging obstacles that will be in place simply because the Prime Minister of Canada and the President of the United States will view the world through completely different lenses. We can even just start with climate change, but just fundamentally, do you see problems developing that will be more significant, more severe than in the past? Well, you could argue that having fundamental difference is a problem. Uh, it's whether they can um, compromise on the differences and, and do something that's best for both of them is the yeah. question. Okay. Uh, Toby Condliffe from uh, Democrats Abroad. Toby, uh, same question that uh, I asked Mark. What do you foresee in the relationship, a developing relationship between Donald Trump and Justin Trudeau? And what what do you think might, I'll ask you to really gaze deeply into your crystal ball, what do you think the impact might be on the Canada-U.S. relationship? Well, I think it's going to, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you fine. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be uh, much worse than Mark sees it. Uh, I, there's going to be problems with the auto pact, I believe. Uh, he has said he wants to tear up NAFTA. Uh, I don't know what impact that will have, but it certainly is not something that will, it'll, it will be disruptive to both our econ- economies. He's much more aggressive uh, on uh, NATO contribution. He has said the United States is carrying too much of the burden for NATO. He's going to want uh, Canada to step up and deliver its 2% of uh, gross income to NATO. Uh, And uh, I think uh, the pipeline, uh, which Trudeau has supported, even though Trudeau is not supportive of the oil sands, he is supportive of pipelines. uh, Not all of them. Uh, well, perhaps not, but uh, uh, we might see the, the pipeline get reopened, uh, the northern pipeline to the tar sands. Okay, so uh, oil sands. So when oil you sands. Oil, oil sands, when you look at um, when you look at the um, at the relationship between the two countries, clearly, the United States has the bigger hammer than Canada, economically and otherwise. Just the population base and the and the and the power base internationally. Um, but if if a significantly negative relationship were to develop between the Trump administration and other countries internationally, where's the problem going to be greater for the United States or the international community? Uh, well, fair question, Mark. Be greater for Canada, uh-huh. uh, but uh, I think that uh, Canada has a, a lot that uh, we have in common with the states, and I'm hopefully we can overcome those differences. Mark, what do you think? Yeah, I also don't know how much significance um, the U.S. has of Canada versus Canada has of the U.S. So I know we're all sitting here um, brooding about what's going to happen and how we're going to be treated and all these sorts of things. I don't think they're doing the same brooding there about how wonder how we're going to react to Canada. Mm-hmm. I think um, I, I think there's a difference in, in perception that way as well. Do you think it would be more favorably looked upon by the Trump administration, Mark, if the Conservatives were to elect as their leader someone like Kevin O'Leary with a strong business background. Would Mr. Trump look at Kevin O'Leary as a better bet than, for example, Justin Trudeau? Well, it depends on the policies and and whether they're stewed for U.S. or not. That's ultimately versus who's in power. Mm -hmm. Um, The conservatives um, more align themselves towards, like, maybe the Democrats in the U.S. or something between the Democrats and Republicans than than the Republican Party and values. But I think their focus is going to be a lot on their own domestic issues and and international things and how it relates to the U.S. I I still believe Canada might be just a sideline issue that's come up, and they'll, they'll deal with it at some point. I have about 60 seconds, so 30 seconds for each of you. Toby, how nasty is it going to get in the United States, Americans against Americans, by by next Friday? 
I think it's going to get very nasty. And, well, mean, I, I think the losers tend to be very vocal on this, on this side. We didn't see the same sort of thing when when uh, the Republicans, you know, charging and burning down things and, and being so vocal. It's, it's just a different ideology, I believe. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I guess we'll, we'll have to watch and see what happens over the next six days. And then next Friday will will be uh, very revealing. But the fact is, there's a president-elect, and he was elected by the majority of Americans in 30 out of 50 states. So Yeah, and, and, and I, I've heard so many things about it. It's not going to happen on Friday, and this will happen before and all that. I think we must establish at some point that he won, and he's going to be um, inaugurated on Friday. There's, there's extremely minute chance that would never happen. Yeah, but we'll, we'll see. I've heard people talk about martial law and all sorts of wonder. Not Martian law, but martial law. Uh, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Toby. Good talking to you always. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Prime Minister didn't have a particularly good day yesterday with his Reconnect with Average Canadians tour. After he reconnected with the old family friend on the private island in the Bahamas, something we'll talk about in greater detail Tomorrow with uh, Michelle Simpson, former seatmate to Justin Trudeau during question period when there were both opposition liberal members of parliament. But out he went, the prime minister, and he sat and he met and he did town halls with average Canadians. I think most people have heard some of this, seen some of this, heard or seen all of it, but I want to play it for you because I did receive some emails earlier today, haven't seen that, haven't heard that conversation, that, that encounter between the woman who was trying desperately to pay for her hydro bills in Ontario and put food on the table and Prime Minister Trudeau's response. Well, Prime Minister Trudeau's response was shameful, pathetic, rambling nonsense. Have a listen to the whole thing. It's about six and a half minutes. Then we have a second clip for you that's 13 seconds about the oil sands. And remember, Brian Jean, the leader of the Wild Rose Party in Alberta, the official opposition, will be joining us later on in the hour. Here's Kathy Katula, the woman in question, confronting Mr. Trudeau. But something's wrong now, Mr. Trudeau. My heat and hydro now cost me more than my mortgage. I now... I now... Not only work 75 hours a week, I stay and work 15 hours a day just so I don't lose my home. My hydro bill, my hydro bill I want to share with you, a single family home, one person who works hard with a brace up to her leg, partially paralyzed every single day I put that brace on and I'm proud to be Canadian, but something's wrong with our system. And I have faith in you and God that you're going to work hard to fix it. How do you explain to a woman how she's supposed to pay a hydro bill, $1,085? And I did it. I've done it. I've done it for the last year. I lived without hydro for five days after paying a $680 bill. They showed up one day. I came home from work in the hottest day of our last summer to go five days in the heat. I have epilepsy, a disability. I called and I begged our hydro company. They wouldn't do nothing. Five days, I lived in that heat. I'm asking you, Mr. Trudeau, and here is my question today. How do you justify to a mother of four children, three grandchildren, physical disabilities, and working up to 15 hours a day, how is it justified for you to ask me to pay a carbon tax when I only have $65 left of my paycheck every two weeks to feed my family, I'm asking you to fix our hydro system. I'm asking you to fix Canada. I'm asking you, Mr. Trudeau, I know we need HST. I know we need taxes to fix roads. I know we are a country that welcomes people from everywhere. I am I putting my faith in God and you that you're going to make our country a place that we can prosper again, that I don't have to wake up tomorrow and worry whether I'm thriving or I'm surviving. I don't have to go to work and eat instant oatmeal for lunch and live off Campbell's soup. I make almost $50,000 a year, Mr. Trudeau, and I'm living in energy poverty. 
Please tell me, how are you going to fix that for me and all of us in rural Ontario? First off, uh, on behalf of everyone here, let me uh, say thank you, not just for everything you do, but for sharing that extraordinary story with us. Your uh, strength, your determination is uh, uh, an inspiration and example to us all. Um, we are a country in which uh, anyone with a quarter of your strength, of your drive, uh, should be uh, thriving and focused on how are you going to spoil your grandchildren uh, with all your energy as opposed to uh, how are you going to get through the week uh, or the day. Um, a lot of different elements come into your, into your question. A, a number of them are provincial. Uh, hydro bills are uh, provincial. But as you point out, uh, the, federal, uh, the, the federal government's decision to put a price on carbon uh, is something that we have uh, moved forward with. And it's one that is uh, causing consternation amongst uh, a, a broad range of people. And I, I understand, because uh, carbon and carbon emissions and carbon uh, is part of uh, everything we do, whether it's uh, heating our homes or getting back and forth from work uh, or, uh, or in the, in the you know, products we buy. Um, you justify mm -hmm. a person who's barely providing having to pay for infrastructure for public transit in Toronto mm -hmm. and the country. No, I, I entirely agree. Making money to provide for rebate for people to buy $150,000 electric cars when most of us can be in a affordable $20,000 car. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, I, I, we... We, we need to uh, realize that we are in a time of transition right now, uh, that the world is moving off of fossil fuels, and that's a good thing, and it's an important thing, because uh, quite frankly, the, uh, you know, the extreme weather events that are coming uh, are going to be incredibly expensive, uh, and not just for, uh, for our communities, but for our agriculture, for uh, uh, people in the north, people right across the country. We are facing uh, a challenge where we have to change uh, behaviors. And it is important that those changes happen in a way that doesn't penalize our most vulnerable, that doesn't make it more difficult for families who are already stretched thin uh, to succeed. And that's one of the reasons why what we're doing with the putting a price on carbon is we are leaving it up uh, to the provinces to determine whether uh, a carbon tax uh, or a levy or a cap-and-trade system is right for them. And on the other hand, we are not taking any money outside of the jurisdictions that pay those carbon taxes. So it will be up to the government of Ontario to ensure that you are not penalized, that uh, folks like you don't... I, 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 we haven't brought in any carbon tax yet, ma'am. Uh, it doesn't start kicking in until... It doesn't start kicking in for another few years, okay? Uh, but uh, I understand your concerns. And what is so important is that in this time of transition, we do not penalize people who are already uh, stretched uh, to, and in some cases, uh, beyond the breaking limit in terms of their finances. And that's why uh, being smart about uh, how, we, uh, how we reallocate that, those funds uh, is essential, and that's what we're leaving it in the hands of the provinces to do, and I'm, I'm uh, trusting they will do that uh, responsibly and not uh, penalize you further and challenge you on that. But we need to get off fossil fuels. We need to make this transition. We need to start protecting uh, our lakes, waters, rivers, streams, our lands, our children's future. And that means uh, we are going to have to go through a shift period. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Mindless babble. Really, that's what it, that's what it is. It's mindless babble. Kathy Katula had her very specific concerns and fears that she asked Justin Trudeau to address and put her faith in him to take care of. And it was drivel that she got in return. He's tone deaf. Started babbling about his carbon tax that we're in times of transition, moving off fossil fuels, then he threw the Ontario Premier under the bus, Kathleen Wynne, 
Well, it's the provinces that have to make the decisions. It's the provinces that are responsible. It's the provinces who who, who will have to um, 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 take do, uh, with the money. I can't even do this. I can't even. I can't. I can't even repeat. I have no skills when it comes to trying to uh, speak like Trudeau. As he was talking about the provinces making the decisions on what happens with the money that is taken taken from citizens in the provinces as a carbon tax or cap-and-trade or a levy, as he said. I kept thinking about what Brad Wall, the premier of Saskatchewan, said to the prime minister following the federal government, provincial government's meetings just a few weeks ago, where Mr. Trudeau pointed out when Mr. Wall said, look, our farmers are struggling, our farmers are in difficulty, the agricultural sector is going to have trouble Um, paying these taxes and carrying on and meeting their expenses. And Trudeau said, well, you can give the money back to them. So the Supreme Wall, and I'm paraphrasing, said, "So, so what you want me to do then is tax the farmers with a carbon tax, send that to you, you'll send it back to me, and then I give it back to the farmers. What's the point? Mr. Trudeau had no response to that. So the province of Saskatchewan will be meeting the federal government in court. I was just so disappointed in Justin Trudeau's lack of even the basics as far as communicating any hope for Kathy Ketula. And it's not just Ms. Ketula, Mr. Prime Minister. It's people all over this, uh, the province of Ontario. That's where I am. Half a million people can't meet their hydro payments. And we have people in the province of Ontario, I know it's the Premier's responsibility, right? People in the province of Ontario have to make decisions about whether they're going to buy food or whether they're going to pay for their hydro or whether they're going to have clothing. Because they can't afford all three because the hydro bills, the electricity bills have spiraled so dramatically. And we're in a time of transition, you say, moving off fossil fuels. What the hell was that trip to the Bahamas about? Does that Challenger jet not leave a carbon footprint? And how about that private helicopter that the Aga Khan owns that goes from the island to, to Grand Bahama and back? That you, How many times did you use that? Does that have a carbon footprint, Prime Minister, or does it not apply to you? Here's what Trudeau said about the, uh, about the oil sands. We can't shut down the oil sands tomorrow. Uh, We need to phase them out. We need to manage the transition off of our dependence on fossil fuels. Uh, That is going to take time. And in the meantime, we have to manage that transition. Aha. So you in Alberta are going to have your oil sands phased out by the man whose father gave you the National Energy Program. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We're talking about the Prime Minister of Canada and his responses to, or at least his response to Kathy Ketula yesterday and uh, his talk about phasing out the oil sands in Alberta. What did you hear when you hear the Prime Minister? Do you hear something that is encouraging, uplifting, and, um, um, well, outstanding? Or do you hear something else? Diane in Calgary. Diane, thank you for the call. Go ahead, please. Hi. Um, his Trudeau's statement uh, with regards to Alberta phasing out, uh, it's going to be detrimental in anybody wanting to invest in our province, which is uh, going to go against us again. He talks about the cap and trade for us, that we get the money back from our premier. But, however, Premier Notley is investing heavily in Edmonton, which is a capital city, while Calgary has one quarter of the downtown businesses already shut down, the space is empty. We have small businesses that have been hit by two taxes from her, plus the employee. Uh, uh, no, I understand, but I, I and, and Diane, I appreciate what you're saying. But what did you hear from Justin Trudeau? I heard that he wants to take us into recession. I heard that somebody who is not intelligent enough to be running this country, and I sadly fear that. If the PCs do not find somebody that can make Canada great again. 
we're going to be in trouble. We're either going to be in a recession in Canada or there's people talking about splitting up Canada. I love Canada. Mm-hmm. We're a tremendous country. I've heard, thank you for the call. Us. I appreciate the call, Diane. I've seen uh, quite a few emails about uh, and seen it on Twitter with uh, folks in Alberta saying maybe it's time to leave Canada over what Justin Trudeau said yesterday. We'll be speaking with Brian Jean, the leader of Wild Rose, in about 10 minutes' time on the Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. What did you hear when you heard Justin Trudeau yesterday? Brian in Etobicoke, Ontario. Brian, how are you, sir? Hey, you're doing a great show. Thank you, sir. So, um, like I think Mr. Trudeau and Kathleen Wynne share something in common that's almost parallel each other, and that is, they both have delusional thinking when it comes to Canada's potential impact on global warming. Like Brad Wall has even done some math on this, and he, he took out his calculator, and he looked at what's Canada's carbon footprint, and it turned out to be about, I think he said 1.6%. Yeah, 1.3, I think it is, but let's get to the issue of how the Prime Minister performed this is a man who, in response at least partly to the criticism he faced for his New Year's vacation on the private island of the Aga Khan, flying on a helicopter, which by law he's not allowed to do, uh, an ethically challenged decision by the prime minister. So he goes out to speak to Canadians, average Canadians, and you heard what he said. How, how do you react to the prime minister and his performance yesterday? I think it's a total outrage and, uh, and an absolute insult to anybody that uh, lives in Alberta, an absolute insult, well, actually, to all of Western Canada. How insulting can this prime minister be? Unbelievable. That, I, like, I'm shocked that, that even, even Justin Trudeau didn't seem to realize any impact on, on what would happen when this hit the press. Yep, got you. Brian in Etobicoke, Ontario. For those of you out west who don't think Ontarians have any time for you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So, uh, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada with a majority government, clearly stating yesterday, clearly stating that the time has come to start phasing out the oil sands in Alberta. Unless I'm misunderstanding, the Prime Minister of Canada, Brian Jean, is the leader of the Wild Rose Party, the official opposition in the province of Alberta, and a former member of Parliament. Brian, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. What did you hear from Justin Trudeau? What, what was your immediate reaction when you heard that come out of his mouth? It wasn't surprising, but it's an absolutely ridiculous policy position. The world, Canada, Canadians are going to need fossil fuels for the next many, several decades, and... I believe the world needs more, not less, Alberta oil. We do our oil more environmentally integral procedures, more ethical, more workers' rights. More money comes back to the people of Alberta and the people of Canada than I would suggest any other oil in the world. It doesn't go to the people. It usually goes to dictators. And in this case, Alberta does it better than anybody else. We need more Alberta oil, not less. Why do you think Mr. Trudeau has such a clearly apparent dislike I'm choosing my words carefully, for the province of Alberta. You know, it, it, it is quite shocking, but not if you lived through the first national energy program that his father brought into Alberta, where I saw hundreds of businesses closed down. You know, this is a government, the Liberal government in Ottawa, that should stand up for the people of Alberta, just like it should stand up for the people of Ontario and the people right across the country. The Prime Minister of Canada is supposed to stand up and create jobs, have a better economy and especially do no further harm during an economic downturn. We have actually lost hundreds of thousands of jobs here in Alberta. We have over 200,000 people out of work. This is a very bad thing. And saying this, this ridiculous policy position that is so out of touch with the rest of the world, is a very bad signal to investors. He might as well have just simply held up a big sign that said, don't invest in Alberta. We're closed for business. And when the Prime Minister of Canada says something as he did, and specifically about an area and a region and an interest that is under international scrutiny, as he did, it does become policy. It does become an expression of policy to many, 
and it will become an expression of policy, as you say, to investors who might have been looking at the oil sands as being a relevant place to put their money again, given the fact that oil prices seem to be recovering. I know it's been a bit of a hiccup in the last 24 hours, but they have been recovering, and so maybe people would have been interested uh, to put their money into the oil sands. They hear the Prime Minister of Canada say, time to phase them out. Well, the money may well go elsewhere. If you look at it, uh, Saskatchewan has been ranked as the fourth best place in the world for oil and gas investment. Alberta is somewhere around 43rd. That's because of our NDP government. Now we have a federal prime minister that is kicking us when we're down. We've had a fire that has devastated 2,500 families, destroyed their homes, destroyed many of their lives. We've had over 100,000 people unemployed just in the last 14 months and about 200,000 that are unemployed. We are resilient, we will survive, and we will come back stronger than ever. But it's obvious that we need a prime minister that actually looks out for the best interest of all Canadians, not just trying to create divisive politics, trying to satisfy some out-of-touch elite actress from California. We need to work together as a world, not just Canada shutting down its competitive advantage and its oil sands industries. We need to work together as a world to find a solution, and I believe the solution is in... Research and development, great technologies that we can export to the world, export to places like China and India, which really have a bad pollution problem. We can do better, and we can be the example to the world, but we need to have jobs to be able to do that, and we need to have opportunity and encourage people to invest in Alberta, just like they should encourage Radio Cross, this wonderful, great country, but we need a better prime minister to do that, and I'm going to be doing everything I possibly can in 2019 to make sure that we have a better prime minister than the one we currently have. Uh, you mentioned you're from uh, Fort McMurray. As I understand it, the, the federal government has not matched, as Mr. Trudeau promised it would, has not yet delivered the funds, the matching funds, for all of the people who suffered so much from the wildfire in Fort McMurray. Ottawa has not come up with its share of the money, has it? That's my understanding, is they not only have not come up with their share of the money, that the uh, the situation is we have import duties now on on drywall coming to Fort McMurray and coming to Alberta that is put in place by this federal government. And, you know, that, that means that every single home in Fort McMurray is going to be more expensive to build, and we need about 2,300 of them build in the next 12 months, hopefully. It'll probably take about 24, but we're hoping as soon as possible. Every single one of those families will have to pay more, and people think, oh, it's just insurance. Well, there's many, many people that are not insured adequately, and certainly many people that don't have any insurance whatsoever and have to start over from scratch. This is not the time to increase the burden for the people of Port Murray. The Prime Minister should be there with both hands out, holding opportunity out for these people and making sure that he removes all the regulatory burden, all the taxes and tariffs that he possibly can to make it easier for these people to rebuild because we are the economic engine of Canada. We're proud to do what we do. We do it with so many people from right across the country, and we're so proud to do what we do. But jobs in the economy is what this Prime Minister should focus on not rhetoric to please some out-of-touch elite. Brian, what uh, what I've noticed, or what I've noted each time I've listened to this particular clip of Justin Trudeau, let's play it again, Justin Trudeau uh, talking about time to phase out the oil sands, because I want you to listen to, to, to how he says it, and then I'll make my point. We can't shut down the oil sands tomorrow. Uh, we need to phase them out. We need to manage the transition off of our dependence on fossil fuels. Uh, that is going to take time, and in the meantime, we have to manage that transition. He sounds so comfortable, Brian, saying, phase out the oil sands. There's no hesitation. There's none of the customary ums and ahs that seem to, you know, uh, split every second word that he speaks. He sounds extremely comfortable as though this is something that he's not only given plenty of thought to, but is committed to. And, and by extension, and I would love to speak to Mr. Trudeau about this, but I'll speak to you. I, I, I almost have the feeling that he is quite willing, quite willing, quite prepared to damage the province of Alberta and hurt the people of the province in order to get his agenda through and in order to drive forward the agenda that he promised the people in Washington when he met with that liberal think tank that he met with. Absolutely. And I would suggest the key word in that entire sentence was yet. Uh, that means that he intends to do it, that means he's planning on doing it, and that means he will do it if he's given the opportunity. You know, it's disingenuous and hypocritical for him to do that when you have a situation where we have California crude, for instance, which is more intensive GHG emissions. We have Venezuelan crude that's imported into the United States and I believe into eastern Canada. 
that's more GHG intensive than Alberta crude. He is allowing the world and the people that are interested in massive green experiments to drive our people out of work and, frankly, creating a much worse quality of life for all of us. Because, as you know, Roy, the oil sands and the wealth that we create in Fort McMurray does go right across the country. Of course. Of course. But you're expendable. And by extension, so, are the, so is everybody else who, who, who actually has a need uh, for the transfer payments that Alberta has done so generously and for so long. It's just expendable to the man's mantra, philosophy, and belief system. Well, Roy, I'm going to tell you this. As I mentioned in Alberta just a few days ago, if Trudeau wants to phase out oil sands, he's going to have to go through me and 4 million Albertans before that's ever going to come close to happening. And I don't think he's ever going to have that opportunity. Do you mind if I stand beside you? Do you mind, Brian, do you mind if I stand beside you? Please do, Roy. I invite all Canadians to stand beside me. This is a a national resource that belongs to the people of Alberta, and we're more than happy to share because it creates so much wealth and employment and quality of life for everybody, Roy. I'd be happy to have you stand beside me and, and all your listeners stand beside all of us because we need to have somebody stand up for the people of Alberta because truly it's Alberta today. What's tomorrow? Who does the Prime Minister then pick on for this divisive political stance he has. We need to stand together as a country, show the world that we can do better than anybody can, because we can. Well, but con- let's do it together. Consider me standing beside you, Brian. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your time. All the very best. Anytime at all. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. All right. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Roy. Thank you for uh, agreeing to go a little early, um, having some difficulty reaching our guest who was scheduled for 4 o'clock. So I thought, what could be better than getting you guys on early? Indeed. Well, there's always surprises in your business, so what the heck, eh? Well, yeah, and he's a great guest. He's the former commanding officer of uh, JTF2, Canada's Joint Task Force 2 Elite Special Forces Unit, and... uh, He's always he's always been always been on time, always done the show. So there's been some um, error of communication along the way, and no doubt it's my responsibility. So, but uh, great to ha- great to have you with us. And hi, Michelle. Hello, Roy. Michelle Simpson, former seatmate to Prime Minister Trudeau, who we've been talking about over the last hour, and speaking about the Prime Minister's incoherent, insulting response to Kathy Catula, the woman from Peterborough, who. Um, talked about her difficulty, her extreme difficulty, making the payments for her electricity bill more than $1,000 um, a month is what she's been paying. And she said she has $65 left for every two-week period, 65 bucks after she pays all of her bills. I think we're having trouble getting through to Michelle, uh, to at least to uh, Linda at this point, so we'll keep trying. Let's keep trying, Linda. And uh, let's talk to uh, our two beauties, Catherine and uh, Michelle Simpson. Catherine Swift, former CEO and chair of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, working Canadians representative now. So let's start, if we can, with the prime minister of this country. And Michelle, and you and I are going to speak about this in some more detail tomorrow. But let's talk about his vacation on the Aga Khan's private island. It was supposed to be secret. And then we find out that contrary to law, he used a private aircraft of the Aga Khan, the Aga Khan's private helicopter, to ferry him and his party, I guess, around the Bahamas. And he sees nothing wrong with it. Sure, he's happy to meet with the ethics commissioner. He sees nothing wrong with it. Michelle, is there any doubt in any MP's mind what the ethical requirements are for this kind of situation? Well, I'd like to think that there isn't. They could claim, well, I wasn't aware, uh, but no. It, 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 to me, it was always straightforward, you know, the ethical position and what the law actually states. And that goes for any type of gifts, not just for travel, but once you're there, any type of gifts. You have to declare. But all... All uh, the Prime Minister had to do was have a chat in advance with the Ethics Commissioner. And why they've got such a tin ear, uh, it has me mystified why he would, he just thinks he's above the rules, the law. 
Well, clearly he does, because, Catherine, he sees nothing wrong with what he did. Well, what strikes me, and let's face it, every, virtually every government has some of this, some more than others, um, and, and it deserves to be scrutinized. But what strikes me about the whole affair, you know, viewing it after a few days of flap in the press and stuff, is that they worked really hard to hide every single aspect of this trip. So that, to me, that tells me they knew it was wrong. <laughs> if you don't know it's wrong, why do you keep trying to hide, you know, every... And, and the details just seeped out, you know. Oh, yeah, first, oh, he's in the Bahamas. Oh, and, you know, and, and little details kept, kept... And then he's with another MP and the head of the Liberal Party. Anyway, it just drib, 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 dribbled out over a period of time. And that just says to me, they knew it was the wrong thing to do, but they didn't bother... You know, they did it anyway, basically. They did all these things. And like Michelle says, even that helicopter trip, which, to, to tell you the truth, I don't view the helicopter trip as a big deal. I suspect that's a security thing, eh, Michelle? That's probably well, what that was. No, 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 no. It was, it, it was the only transport. The helicopter it, it was, the, was the only way. That's right. It's the only transportation from Grand Bahama. No, 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 but I'm just saying the reason the yeah. rules are in place, I would have thought, oh, of yeah. not taking private transportation, it's only in place for the Prime Minister and Ministers, not for MPs. No, but Catherine, if we're talking about private transportation, by definition you're talking about using something that's limited as far as what it could accommodate is concerned. Well, yeah. uh, yeah, No, agreed. But but all all I'm trying to say here is I don't frankly view that aspect of this as such a big deal. But as Michelle said, he could have just said, look, I'm on this trip I can only get to this place via this helicopter. Can I get permission? And I'm sure they'd say, sure, it's obviously safe. It's not a risky you know, business or whatever. So that aspect of it to me is not the biggest deal. The biggest deal to me is super high-end vacation on private island, la, 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 taking a few of your buddies in the government with you. Uh, on, and, and let's face it, yes, they'll reimburse They'll reimburse some stuff, but a lot of this is still on the taxpayer's dime, no matter how you look at it. And I can only imagine if a conservative had done this, (laughs) it would be World War. Well, and, 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 and rightly so. I mean, there is no way that this is acceptable behavior on the part of the Prime Minister of Canada. And he would have known that there is a regulation, there's law against him using private aircraft of... Uh, that are being offered to him, particularly when you look at the fact that the Aga Khan is looking for more than, I think it is, $50 million from the Canadian taxpayers to underwrite his charitable efforts. So now we have the Prime Minister of Canada, his wife, we have the, uh, we have the Liberal Party leader and her husband, and we have Seamus O'Regan uh, and his husband going on a trip with the Prime Minister of Canada, and nobody said, hey, we shouldn't do this, please. Well, they have no, to know they shouldn't have, or they wouldn't have been so secretive. Well, but I think, I think arrogance and entitlement meant, oh, heck, we can get away with it, so let's do this thing that we know is wrong and unethical. Who's got well, to do Well, let's who? face it. The, person, the people that would have, you know, supposedly given him advice were actually guilty of it themselves. Gerald Butts. Who has a dog? Sorry, that's my, that's my new dog. Gerald and she's out of control. So. Sounds like the Prime Minister. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.